0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Three quarters of the insects that used to buzz about the countryside 25 years ago have disappeared, and it's not good news. Flying insects, most insects, they make up the bulk of life on Earth. They
1: pollinate more than 80% of all the plant species. They help to keep pests under control. They recycle dung and they're food for the majority of other creatures.
0: Essentially take away the insects and everything else is gonna collapse. Also, a third of the global warming gas CO2 winds up in the ocean, turning it
2: more acidic. If we don't turn around the present change in ocean warming and acidification, we will lose over 50% of the coral reefs in the next couple of decades. So very fast. Those changes are happening.
0: That and more alarming news this week on Living on Earth. Stick around if you dare. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Well, folks, there's a bunch of troubling news this week. For starters, scientists who are studying a surprising loss of flying insects are calling it ecological Armageddon. Of course, insects can be annoying or even dangerous, from flies that carry cholera and dysentery to mosquitoes that spread West Nile and malaria. But butterflies and lightning bugs are beautiful and charming, and others can be friendly, like the dragonfly. And insects work very hard to feed us. They're also food for birds, bats, and frogs, and they pollinate many plants, including food crops, central to human civilization. But now civilization is destroying them. The journal PLOS One reports that amateur entomologists in Germany have discovered that since 1989, some three-quarters of flying insects there have vanished from nature preserves. Study team member Dave Golson teaches biology at the University of Sussex in the U.K., and I asked him why this is such a perilous development. So flying insects, most insects, they make up the
1: bulk of life on Earth. About two-thirds of all species we know are insects. They pollinate more than 80% of all the plant species on Earth. So if we lose flying insects, we will lose all the flowers on Earth, literally all of them. Flowers evolve to attract insects. That's why we have them. Three-quarters of our crops need pollinating by flying insects. So we'd have a world without most fruit and veg They do other things too. They help to keep pests under control. They recycle dung and so on. And they're food for the majority of other creatures. So even if you hate insects, and many people do, but most people think birds are rather attractive and like to see them in their garden or whatever. Well, most birds, uh, at some stage of their life cycle, eat insects. Almost all reptiles, amphibians, aquatic fish, bats, lots of small mammals, all depend on insects. So essentially take away the insects
0: and everything else is going to collapse. You've convinced me that we're in a lot of trouble without them. Talk to me about the data that you have looked at here. What is it and how did it come together? So a group of German entomologists back in the
1: 1980s took it upon themselves to start insect trapping on nature reserves scattered all over Germany. They used things called malaise traps, which look a bit like a small tent, which catch flying insects bump into them and fall into a pot, basically. And they've been doing it ever since from their own kind of interest. I got involved relatively recently, a couple of years ago, when this data kind of finally came to light and we realised what a kind of treasure trove of information it, it could be. And when we started looking at it, we couldn't quite believe what it showed, which was just this wholesale disappearance of of insects. The daily catch of insects has fallen by three quarters, but a little over three quarters in 26 years, which suggests a scale of insect decline that was just, uh, we knew things weren't going well. We knew that butterflies were in decline and so on, but there was very little other monitoring of insects going on. And so we had no idea just how dramatic it had been until we saw these numbers.
0: What do you suspect is behind this decline? As we were getting ready to talk to you, we raised the question of the neonicotinoid insecticides, which started being used in the 80s about the time this decline begins. How much of a suspect are the neonicotinoid insecticides?
1: I think it's very likely they are playing a role. Whether they're the main driver or not is hard to say. The broad picture, I think, is that Essentially, the way we grow food these days makes the environment completely hostile to more or less all forms of life. It isn't just neonicotinoids. We grow these huge monocultures of crops, great big fields, which typically in Europe get about 20 different pesticides applied to them each crop cycle, including maybe four or five different insecticides, a whole bunch of fungicides, things to kill slugs herbicides to control the weeds. So there's just no scope for anything to survive there apart from the crop. And if we cover the landscape in fields like that, then we perhaps shouldn't be surprised when we see wildlife disappearing. These neonicotinoids have got a lot of attention because they are particularly toxic to insects like bees and it takes just 3 billionths of a gram of one of those things to kill a honeybee. And we're applying hundreds of thousands of kilos of them to the landscape every year. So it's undoubtedly contributing to to the loss of our insects. But they are just part of a the whole system of farming, which is entirely dependent on one type of pesticide or another. And that's what we need to look at, I think.
0: Just another detail on neonicotinoids. I gather that they're not exactly being sprayed on the insects that are being lost, but they're in the ecosystem. How does that work? So
1: neonicotinoids
0: are usually used as seed dressings. The farmer buys seed
1: pre-coated with, with a layer of insecticide, and he sows the seed in the ground. And they're water-soluble, they dissolve in the damp soil, and they're supposed to be sucked up by the crop plant. And they spread to all of its tissues, which sounds like a kind of neat system if you're a farmer. It protects the plant against insect pests. The trouble is, if it's a flowering crop, they go into the pollen and the nectar. And then when the bee comes to pollinate the crop, something like oilseed, rape, canola, sunflowers, the bee gets a dose of neurotoxin. Um, but there's more to it than that, because it also turns out that the bulk of the insecticide doesn't get taken up by the crop at all. It's just going into the soil and accumulating in the soil, leaching into streams or being taken up by the roots of wildflowers or hedgerow plants growing near the crops. So we're finding these chemicals turning up in places we didn't expect them, including the pollen and nectar of wildflowers. So there was a recent study showing that 75% of honey samples taken from all over the world contain neonicotinoids showing just kind of the scale, the ubiquity of these chemicals. That basically, if you're a bee anywhere in the world, the chances are your food contains neurotoxins that will kill you at really tiny doses. And that surely can't be a good thing.
0: Now, aside from the neonicotinoids, you point out that there are a whole bunch of other chemicals that might be implicated in this dramatic decline. What kind of chemicals are we talking about? So there are other insecticides,
1: things like pyrethroids and organophosphates. Probably listeners out there, these things don't mean very much. But organophosphates are pretty horrible. They were actually developed in Germany in the Second World War with the aim of killing people. Most of them have been banned, but there are still some that are used in farming. There are lots of fungicides. Well, the the fungicides, you think, well, they're not going to harm insects, but actually, some of them have this strange effect of they knock out the detoxification mechanism of a bee. So although the fungicide itself isn't poisonous, if an insect is simultaneously exposed to a fungicide and an insecticide, the insecticide is effectively much more potent. It can be up to a thousand times more toxic. And then the herbicides just get rid of the weeds. So there are no flowers apart from the crop if that flowers. So although they may or may not be poisonous to the To the bees directly if they get rid of their food then that's just as bad so it's this kind of cocktail the poor bees you know they're going out there they're they're struggling to find food and when they do find food it's got a mixture of pesticides in it and so you know we shouldn't really be surprised that bees and other flying insects aren't doing so well
0: so this is a data that was gathered in germany I've noticed in the US for example where where I live that I don't see lightning bugs anymore and black flies seem to have a much shorter season in Maine and so forth but but what about the tropics is there a similar sort of decline there the, the tropics are different in many
1: ways that there's still more natural habitat left generally not in all but in most in places like the UK and Germany essentially everything is managed land. You have some wilderness left in the United States. In in Germany and the UK, we have none. It's all farmland or cities and little tiny nature reserves scattered amongst them. So there's no reason to really believe that, that it wouldn't be similar in most of Europe and the developed world. But in the tropics, we don't know. Clearly, there's massive habitat loss going on right now in tropical countries. We're still seeing these devastating loss of tropical forests that for all my life, you know, we've been talking about how we really need to stop cutting down the trees, that these rainforests are teeming with life, that they're vital for regulating the climate and all all sorts of other things. And yet, sadly, you know, we're still hacking them down to create oil palm plantations and to grow soybean in Brazil and so on. So my guess is insects are declining there too, but I couldn't tell you whether the pace of change is the same or different.
0: So... uh E.O. Wilson, the biologist at Harvard University, famously once said, and I think this is a paraphrase, that if we lost the ants, just losing the ants, we would lose humanity. What do you think this huge loss of insects means for humanity? If we lose insects, we're doomed. I know it sounds, sounds overly
1: dramatic, but we absolutely are. Life on Earth would be utterly changed. We wouldn't be able to grow our crops. Dung would build up in the fields life on earth would would essentially cease. So we absolutely have to take this really seriously. And, and it's something that I find enormously frustrating, that we, we seem to, to live in a world where people are very detached from the environment. They don't know where their food comes from. They, they seem to not realize that actually, even if you live in a city, we are part of the environment. We depend upon a health, healthy ecosystems. To provide us with places to grow our food, to provide clean air and clean water, and so on, and that a healthy environment is should be our number one priority. You know, forget the economy, forget the health service, forget the rest of it. None of those things will matter if we don't have a healthy environment, because everything else will collapse. And I find it really it drives me nuts that politicians on the whole, don't often talk about the environment. It gets very little attention. We're always worried about short-term economics and so on, but actually we need to think slightly longer term and look after the planet.
0: Professor, what could be done to slow this trend, this rapid loss of, of insects?
1: I'd love to see a major rethink of how we produce food, this idea that we need these great big fields full of monocultures of crops. There are other ways of growing food. I'd love to see a move towards small scale production, get more people back onto the land in small farms producing food for local consumption. We should really tackle food waste because we we grow all this food at huge cost to the environment and then we throw away about a third of it, which is absolutely insane. We eat way too much meat. If we could convince people not to eat so much beef in particular, then that could massively reduce our footprint on the planet. So there are things we could do, but they all require buy-in from significant numbers of people. You know, one or two environmentalists like me banging on isn't going to do anything. We need the majority of people on Earth to change their ways, and that's a pretty difficult thing to achieve.
0: Entomologist Dave Golson is a professor of biologist at the University of Sussex in the UK. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. My pleasure. EPA stands for the Environmental Protection Agency, but some critics say, with Scott Pruitt now as administrator, the U.S. EPA has become the Environmental Polluters Agency. In a move to boost the fortunes of the carbon-polluting coal industry, Mr. Pruitt wants to roll back the Obama-era Clean Power Plan designed to fight global warming. And the EPA recently prevented its own climate scientists from presenting research at a meeting on the health of the Narragansett Estuary in Rhode Island. A probe by the New York Times has found a former executive for the American Chemistry Council, that's an industry lobbying group, is a key scientist for the EPA's recalibration of the health risks of toxic substances. And now Michael Dorson is under fire. He's been nominated to head the EPA's Office on Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention. Critics include David Michaels, a former Assistant Secretary of Labor for OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. David, welcome back to Living on Earth. It's great to be back, Steve. So why does the possibility of Michael Durson leading the Chemical Safety Office at EPA concern you?
3: Well, it's very unfortunate. My understanding is he's already working at the EPA as an advisor to the office that he's been nominated to run. So he's already in there, but with a confirmed nomination when he's sworn in as Assistant Administrator of the EPA, if that happens, he'll have a great deal more power and be able to essentially roll back a lot of the important protections that we rely on to make sure we're safe. You know, Michael Dorsen is a deeply conflicted scientist. He's done mercenary work for dozens of chemical companies on scores of chemicals, but he's refused to promise to recuse himself from ruling on those chemicals or for other chemicals manufactured by those companies. He's the guy in charge of protecting Americans from
0: toxic chemicals, and I don't think he's going to do it right. So what is it about his relationship with industry? I understand he has a consultant group. He founded Terra Toxicology Excellence for Risk Assessment. It's a nonprofit. What about his relationship with industry that concerns you so much? Well, what he's done, he's made a career of applying the
3: tobacco industry, a strategy of manufacturing doubt and manipulating the scientific data to defend toxic chemicals. You know, he even worked for Big Tobacco long after it was clear that their only commitment to science was to invent results that would delay government action. And it's a very successful strategy because no study is perfect. We never have absolute proof, but we need to protect our families. We need to protect our kids by making sure the levels of these chemicals don't
0: get too high. What are some of the chemicals on which he's done this, what you say is dubious research? He's done this work on this huge range of chemicals from diacetyl,
3: which is the chemical that you may remember caused popcorn lung, It destroyed the lungs of workers who worked in popcorn factories because it's an artificial butter flavor. He was working for some of those companies, said, look, that's a very safe chemical. The government said it's much less safe and and the government's right. PFOA, which is this Teflon product that's polluted the water of thousands of people in Ohio and in West Virginia. Again, he was brought in to say, look, we don't really need a strong standard here. He's worked on clopyrophos, which is a very, very toxic pesticide which Scott Pruitt at the EPA has just overruled all their
0: scientists and said that they let people sell it, even though it causes brain damage in kids. What's the nature of the relationship between Scott Pruitt and Michael Dorson? You know, I don't know if they have a
3: personal relationship, but given what Scott Pruitt is doing to the EPA and rolling back all these rules, Michael Dorson's is the perfect person for him to bring on to look specifically at chemical hazards because Dorson has spent his career really working for industry. You know, industry emails revealed that corporate officials felt they could trust him. He was their go-to scientist, always ready to minimize the risk of exposure to toxic chemicals and to weaken standards that should be strengthened to protect us and our family and our kids. You know, last year, on a bipartisan basis, Congress passed a uh, reform of the Toxic Substances Control Act, and it was very promising, developing new ways to make sure that Americans are safe from exposure to toxic chemicals. Right now, under Scott Pruitt, the EPA is rolling back all the commitments they made under that law. And chemicals that shouldn't be in our environment, chemicals that shouldn't be in our food, will remain there. And in some cases, the levels will even go up because of this administration.
0: You recently wrote an opinion piece in The Hill, and you wrote that Dorson quote, repeatedly recommended chemical exposure levels hundreds of times above established limits. Cite this for me, and how did he justify such recommendations, do you think? You know, risk assessment
3: is not a perfect science, and it allows some subjectivity. And he pulls together a group of scientists, many of whom have very close relationships with him. They look at the literature, they apply on it. They look at the epidemiology of human studies, the animal studies. They say, well, it looks like this is a safe level. And that's what he did with diacetyl. He came up with a number that was 20 to 40 times higher than what the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health came up with when they looked at that same literature. And it's wrong. And every time a government agency looks at the same issue, they say, we need a much safer level. But industry then takes his number and promotes it. He says, and his advocates say, that what he does is he produces sound science. But what he really does is to manufacture studies that sound like science. In reality, his results are preordained, if he's hired to study a chemical, you can be sure he'll conclude that chemical isn't
0: very dangerous. David Michaels is a professor of environmental and occupational health at the George Washington University. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Steve, it's been a pleasure to be with you. So the EPA is required to regulate carbon dioxide as a pollutant because it changes the climate, but CO2 also pollutes the sea by making it more acidic. A new report called Exploring Ocean Change from the Group Biological Impacts of Ocean Acidification, or Bioacid, shows rising acidity leads to habitat loss and disruption of growth and reproduction of sea life. Ulf Ribesel is the lead author of the report and joins me now from Kiel, Germany, where he's a research professor at the Geomar Helmholtz Center for Ocean Research. Ulf, welcome to Living on Earth.
2: Thank you very much.
0: So your research found really a diverse response from organisms to the increase in acidification in the oceans. What kinds of impacts could this uh, phenomenon have on life in the sea, on, on the various organisms?
2: Well, what we see is all groups, all large taxonomic groups in the ocean are affected one way or the other. It could be directly by the direct impact of acidification on an individual organism. It could be indirectly by changes in the habitat or changes in the food web. So of the 380 studies so far on individual organisms that we have included in this meta-analysis, Over 50% of the species were directly affected by acidification, even at relatively moderate CO2 levels. On top of that, we will have changes in habitat. For example, all the organisms adapted to life in uh, coral reefs. As the coral reefs are disappearing, so will the habitat for these organisms. And that's an indirect effect. So it's, it's a wide array of organisms that will feel the pressure of acidification in connection with ocean warming. How do you study ocean
0: acidification? What methods do you use to gather the data?
2: Well, there's, there's a whole range of methods. You can start with test tubes in the lab. That's what has been done in the very beginning of ocean acidification research. Then people have gone to larger containers where they include more and more organisms. And eventually we have come to realize that we actually have to go out into the field to study acidification in natural communities, ecosystems, where all the components of a community come together. And that's why we have developed what we call mesocosms, these big containers which we can put out into the ocean, enclose a large body of water, and then simulate the future conditions by just adding CO2 into some of them at different levels. And then we can basically simulate today's ocean 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and so on. How much acidification are you talking
0: about here? And put that in terms that people who maybe don't really understand much about chemistry could understand.
2: Well, from chemistry, you know, we talk about the pH scale and this goes from zero to 14. And the middle of that is what normal fresh water has about pH seven. That scale is kind of misleading because it's a logarithmic scale. So if we talk about ocean water before human activity started, it had a pH of 8.2. And now we're down to 8.1. It doesn't sound like much. But because it's a logarithmic scale, it means that acidity of the ocean has increased by thirty percent. If we continue to emit CO two at current rates, then by the end of this century, we would be at a change in acidity up to a hundred to one hundred and fifty percent. So basically doubling the acidity of the ocean in just uh, about one hundred and fifty years, which would be massive. We hope we're not getting there. And if we stay within the Paris Agreement, two degrees warming, that would also mean that acidification doesn't nearly go as far. But still, as I said, we have already acidified the ocean by 30%. To what extent are we
0: seeing the biota of various organisms responding now to the increase in acidification in the oceans?
2: Well, we certainly see some of the organisms and even some of the communities and ecosystems to already respond to the ongoing acidification. So even today, we can go out and see some, in particular, calcifying organisms to be affected. Their shells are thinner in, in cases where they're exposed to what we call corrosive waters, where the water is undersaturated with respect to calcium carbonate, the, the minerals of, of which they build their shells and skeletons. We can see that they are dissolving from the outside. Those effects are seen today. We also see that large parts of the warm water coral reefs are already affected by the combination of warming, but also in combination with acidification. If we don't turn around the present change in ocean warming and acidification, we will lose over 50% of the coral reefs in the next couple of decades. So very fast. Those changes are happening.
0: So tell me what your laboratory experiments are showing in terms of how species might be adapting or not to Mm -hmm. acidification
2: in the ocean. That is in fact a very important question. Can organisms adapt to acidification? In our experiments, we usually expose them to high, high CO2, low pH within days or, or weeks at the longest. In reality, they have years to decades to get slowly adapted to this. Is that enough time for them to actually evolve and change their setup so they can deal with it? And What we've done is we've worked with organisms that have very short generation times, phytoplankton, the calcifying phytoplankton, they have generation times of one day. So they reproduce every day. So that means they go through about 300 to 400 generations a year, and we have grown them now for four years, so 1,600 generations. What we see is They can adapt to some extent. They can be slightly better in dealing with ocean acidification, but they cannot compensate, even after so many generations, they cannot fully compensate for the negative effects of acidification, which makes sense because for a calcifier, acidification just means you have to invest more energy into building calcium carbonate. That means you have to make sacrifices somewhere else in growth, in reproduction, in whatever. This is with small organisms that have short generation times. If you kind of extrapolate this to organisms with generation times of let's say a year, then of course 10 years, 20 years only makes 10 to 20 generations. That's by far not enough to be fully adapted. What about some of the species
0: in the ocean that have been important economically and gastronomically to humans? For example, cod in the North mm-hmm. Atlantic. How, how are they responding to increased acidification as far as you can tell?
2: Yes, so we, we're very interested in looking at economically important species. We took cod larvae and juvenile fish of, of cod into the lab and exposed them to high CO2. And what we saw is that their survival is very much reduced under high CO2, low pH. And this makes sense because Larvae and juvenile fish usually don't have very good pH regulation in their body. It takes basically until they have fully developed their gills. That's when they start being under full control of pH. We then use those lab results and put them into some recruitment models where we have stock developments of cod in the North Atlantic. And what it showed is if we use this 50% reduction in larval survival, what it means in terms of stock recruitment is that we could have down to one quarter to even one tenth of the stock production in the future ocean. And this is something we definitely need to consider when we talk about fish catches in the future and how much we can allow fishermen to take out of the ocean.
0: Who is going to feel earliest and strongest the effects of ocean acidification around the
2: world? It's the same thing as with climate change. It's the poorest people that will feel this first. If you just look at the last FAO report, they say that about 1 billion people on our planet have protein from the ocean as their most important protein source, but these people mostly live in the poor countries. So those 1 billion people will be affected by acidification most. And FAO of course stands
0: for the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. So what could be done in the near term to reduce ocean acidification Aside obviously from from reducing the production of CO2, what technical things might be done?
2: Globally, it's almost impossible to change that. The global ocean is directly affected by CO2 emissions, will take up one third of what we produce every day. So if we take our car from home to work and back, one third of that CO2 goes directly into the ocean. There's nothing we can do about it unless we reduce our emissions. Locally or regionally, we could do something, for example, ecosystems like coral reefs that we value very highly, that we do not want to lose. We could save by planting algae and seagrasses around these because by photosynthesizing, they will take up CO2 from the ocean, they will increase pH in the seawater. We could even think of putting some lime in the waters around these coral reefs and thereby increase pH slightly. But it just provides another reason to do what we already know has to be done, which is reducing CO2 emissions. Ulf Ribesel is a
0: research professor at the Geomar Helmholtz Center for Ocean Research
2: in Kiel, Germany.
0: Thank you so much, Professor, for taking the time.
2: Thank you very
0: much. As Arctic sea ice melts, polar bears find themselves these days on ice free land, littered with plastic and washed up garbage and without any good source of food. That has hungry bears looking for alternatives, which living on Earth's explorer in residence, Mark Seth Lender,
4: found rather disquieting. The big white dog pads down the rocky beach towards shore, 600 miles from the pole. Someone's come to visit him. Oh, boy! He's been so bored. No one to uh, play with. No one to run with. No one to throw him doggy treats. Though right about now, big white dog would much prefer a bleeding hunk of red meat. Well marbled. The fatter the better. Cholesterol's not his enemy, only the weather. Which right about now is warm. Too warm. And all his playmates... They're gone. He's not sure where. He sure does hope they'll be back soon, right where they used to be only a couple of yummy months before. But in the meantime, here are all these new friends. In their friendly rubber boat, there are so many of them to choose from. It's so hard to decide. He has to sit himself down like a good dog on his big white paws, with railroad spikes for claws and his canine teeth like the rule of law in this lawless place. And like all polar bears, he has that goofy smile. From his blue-black lips following the line of his jaw, he is so fluffy and furry, you can't imagine he'd do you a lick of harm. Big white dog picks at the carcass of a long dead bird and chews the feathers, spits out the bones and wishes the whole thing tasted better and walks inland over the plastic that decorates the flotsam line in red and blue and green and the sticks that were a forest in Siberia cut down and washed up here and water-rounded lumps of coal and fishing gear and the oil slick... And it's polar bears, we fear.
0: Mark Sethlander's pictures of the hungry polar bear are at our website, loe.org. Coming up, less and less ice for the dog days of summer. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
5: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The book's title says it all, A Farewell to Ice. It's the result of nearly a half-century of personal ice research, mostly in the Arctic, by Peter Wadhams. He's head of the Polar Ocean Physics Group at Cambridge University. And the fast retreat of glaciers and polar ice is sobering, if not terrifying, in what it implies for the future of life here on Earth. Living on Earth's Helen Palmer met up with Peter Wadhams at the Oxford University Press Offices in Manhattan.
6: Peter Wadhams, I have to say your book, A Farewell to Ice, paints a very grim picture. How early were you aware that things were going downhill, as it were?
7: Well, it took a long time before we realised things were changing. And I think, for me, the realisation came when, in 1987, I did a submarine voyage over the same ground that I'd followed in 1976 and found that the ice was much thinner. There was about 15% loss of ice over a huge area of the arctic so that was my first realization that the situation was not stable
6: now your book's full of incredible graphs and tables and one that i found particularly telling is what you call the arctic death spiral can you explain that to me and describe it
7: well it was not invented by me but by a scientist called mark Cerez at the university of colorado and it's a way of representing the decline in the volume of ice in the Arctic on a month-by-month, year-by-year basis. So what you do is have a clock-shaped graph where going out from the centre, you have the volume of ice during each month of each year. So you start off in the 1970s where the data began and then you move around the clock clockwise for each month looking at how the volume changes from year to year. And if there was no change going on, then each of the curves for each month would be a a circle. So you'd have a bunch of concentric circles. But because the ice is thinning and retreating, the curves actually draw in towards the centre. So it's like a spiral. And September is the month that will reach the centre first because that's the month with minimum area of ice. And so it's a death spiral in the sense that first September will reach the centre and. Wipe itself out for ice cover, and then a few years later, probably it will be July, August, October, and November, while the ice remains in the winter, but its volume still decreases.
6: So, what are the implications of that graph as you see it?
7: Well, the implications are that the Arctic is changing from being a permanent ice cover to becoming a seasonal one, and that will have big changes on ocean currents to the circulation of the atmosphere fisheries as well and especially to the air temperature which will warm up because there isn't any ice cooling the surface anymore and that will have an effect for instance on air currents over Greenland which will increase the melt rate of the Greenland ice sheet.
6: Now obviously the increase of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere which we're very aware of from about 280 parts per million to over 400 Mm. is one of the major causes of the warming we're seeing. What other causes are there of this warming?
7: Well, CO2 is probably the main source, but there is also an increased warming due to methane. We're finding increased methane emissions partly from the fact that people are careless with gas pipelines and fracking, and we're getting more methane going into the atmosphere from those sources. And partly it's Methane coming from shallow water in the Arctic, where underneath the shallow Arctic continental shelves, there's frozen ground, um, there's permafrost left over from the last ice age, and that permafrost acted as a cap over a lot of methane contained in the sediments. That cap's being removed as the permafrost melts and the methane's being released.
6: And, of course, methane in the short term is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Are we certain that it is actually escaping? Are we seeing it escaping in the polar oceans?
7: Oh, yes, we're seeing it escaping. Every year there's a research voyage into the Russian Arctic seas. That's the East Siberian Sea and the Kara Sea. And it's just more and more every year. The fear is that all the permafrost will melt in one rapid go and then the amount of methane that comes out will be a huge pulse and that would have a detectable climate change effect maybe 0.6 of a degree is something we modelled very rapidly so it would be just a big jerk to the world climate.
6: And of course the idea is to keep the global temperature below two degrees celsius and we're already at about 1.2 degrees celsius of warming so Hmm. 0.6 takes us virtually there.
7: Yes, but we're at 1.2, and even without any further carbon dioxide emissions, we'll probably rise to 2, because not all of the intrinsic warming that's given by a certain carbon dioxide level actually is realised immediately. It takes years for the effects to come through in the temperature of the oceans, for instance. If we stopped emitting carbon dioxide and just stayed put, the temperature would still rise for a while.
6: There's another problem with the ice being gone. It does also have a kind of like a feedback effect on heating up the Arctic. Can you explain that?
7: Well, yes. In fact, the strongest effect on accelerating Arctic warming is the fact that as the ice retreats, you're replacing a surface that reflects about 80% of the radiation from the sun straight back into space. That's because
6: Um, there's ice and snow and white coverage. Yes
7: it's white and the solar radiation is in the visible band so the fact that it's white shows it's reflecting and you replace that by dark water or on land by dark tundra and that reflects only 10% or less of the energy falling on it. So you're changing from 80% reflection to 10% reflection and that's a huge extra amount of radiation absorbed by the Earth's surface or the ocean surface, and that really increases the rate of warming. That's that's called the albedo feedback.
6: And, of course, another important factor of the polar ice cap was that it helped to cool the climate generally. It was this great mm-hmm. air conditioning sort of system that it created, and we're losing that.
7: Yes, because it had a lot of effects. The fact that the sea ice was still there in the summer meant that it stabilised the air temperature at being not higher than zero degrees, because if the air temperature got warmer, it would just melt some of the surface snow and ice. And that's it. It was an air conditioning system for the air, but it was also an air conditioning system for the ocean, that the ocean couldn't warm beyond zero degrees, because otherwise the, the ocean heat would melt some of the ice from below. So as long as there was still ice there to be melted it kept the temperature of the atmosphere and the temperature of the ocean at about zero degrees. So that prevented warm air from wafting over Greenland, which is now free to do, and it prevented warm water from melting the subsea permafrost, which it's now doing. So it was performing two very useful functions, both of which have now stopped.
6: Several countries do see that there are economic opportunities in the ice-free Arctic, certainly for shipping and fossil fuel developments and new fishing grounds. What is your take on that?
7: Well, we did an analysis of the costs of global warming. This was based on the model used by the Stern Review, which was the review for the UK government on climate change costs. And even a methane release, which is a burst of methane giving a 0.6 degree warming, would be the equivalent in terms of economic cost of about 60 trillion dollars which is a fraction of what the total cost of global warming but it's it's the cost of that amount of warming now if we're talking about trillions of dollars of cost to the world for global warming then the billions of dollars which you can make out of increased shipping across the arctic or increased rate of oil drilling becomes trivial
6: now Early in your career, you did some absolutely fascinating research on the effects of oil in the Arctic. And obviously, one of the plans of certainly the Soviets and indeed the current government in the US is to increase drilling in the Arctic. What did you find about the effects of oil when it's spilt in Arctic waters?
7: Well, the effects of oil spills are pretty frightening. When I was working on it full-time, that was when I was in Canada, you were allowed to do oil spills in the open sea to study what the effects were. And we we did an oil spill all through a winter in a bay in the Canadian Arctic and then spilled some more oil under ice. And what we find is that oil, when it's spilled under ice through a blowout on the seabed, the oil collects under the ice and then gets incorporated in the ice by new ice growing underneath the oil. So you have what's called an oil sandwich and the ice drifts away because the ice is moving. And over a winter, you can have a huge area of the Arctic covered with ice flows, which contain oil sandwiches. You can't detect the oil because it's incorporated in the ice. But as soon as summer comes along and the ice flows melt, the oil starts to come out and you'll find a vast area of the Arctic with little pockets of oil coming out from the melting ice, which is virtually impossible to clean up. It will be far more expensive than the Gulf of Mexico spill, for instance. And I think it's had an effect. When we wrote the report and published it, Shell was busy exploring in the Chachi Sea, and that year they just gave up. They said it was because there wasn't any oil, or wasn't any good oil. But we suspect it was because... It would be expected that if there were a big blowout, the company that did it would have to foot the bill the way that BP did with the uh, Deepwater Horizon. So they decided probably it was more fruitful to go and do some fracking instead.
6: So obviously you're painting a pretty sort of dire picture for us of where we're going with the ice. So you do propose something like a geoengineering approach, at least for the short term, I mean, isn't that sort of like a council of despair, really?
7: Yes, it's a council of despair in a way. And also there's a very legitimate criticism that if you do something that gets rid of global warming or hides global warming, then it enables everybody to carry on with their nasty habits and and not reform and be more virtuous. And that's absolutely true. But the trouble is it's very hard to make the human race reform and be virtuous. They would far rather carry on living the way they're used to living and the feeling which I suppose is the tragedy of the commons is why should I give up my SUV just because it emits a lot of CO2 when it's only going to have a tiny effect on global warming. So we have to go to the technological solutions because we can't depend on people's virtues for the solution of abstaining from emitting carbon dioxide.
6: So there are several potential solutions. Tell me about the one that you think has the most valency.
7: Well, there's two that I think would work. The first one is to hold back global warming, although it doesn't affect carbon dioxide levels and doesn't affect what that's doing to the oceans. But to hold it back is a method called marine cloud brightening, where you you have a, a drone ship drifting around with very tall masts, which inject a carefully calculated size of tiny seawater droplet into the bottoms of clouds. And that brightens the cloud up because of the small size of these particles and increases albedo, which could hold back global warming. And the advantage of that is the effect stops as soon as you stop applying it. So if there's some accidental bad effect on some part of the world, you can simply stop. Whereas other methods like releasing aerosols into the stratosphere. You can't do anything. You have to wait till it falls out of the stratosphere. But it's still not a solution. It's a sticking plaster. A real solution is taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And I think we have to do that if we're going to save the world in the long term.
6: Professor Wadhams, is it possible that your conclusions are too pessimistic?
7: Well, I, actually, I like to think of my that they're optimistic because a lot of people who analyse the situation of the planet and, and write polemical accounts are so despairing that they end up saying we're doomed, so we should all go and live on mountaintops with guns and so on. I think that's bad because we do have ways to save ourselves. And I think geoengineering is a way to stop the warming getting to the point where it's it's very, very seriously affecting our society. And then CO2 removal is something that that I think will work and because it, it does work already but it's just cost too much but it will be made to be cheaper and when it's made to be cheaper it can save us so I think we can save ourselves and the, the optimistic thing is we can save ourselves without becoming more virtuous because if we can find a way to get rid of CO2 from the atmosphere then people who want to drive ferraris around and SUVs and so on can keep on doing so uh, up to a point you know they that you're not going to uh, forcibly abolish fossil fuels so we don't have to become suddenly virtuous people we can combine it with still keeping some of our old habits which means it's more likely to happen
0: cambridge university professor peter wadham's book a farewell to ice is based on nearly 50 years of research in polar waters He spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. At Halloween, we think of ghoulies and ghosties and long-leggedy beasties. Indeed, you may even get some of them at your door demanding candy. And as Michael Stein tells us in today's Bird Note, some of our avian acquaintances would fit
8: right in. Imagine yourself an 18th century sailor, rowing out from your boat at night towards a remote Pacific island. You're heading to the island to find fresh water for the ship, only to be greeted by this frightful moaning. Some early sailors feared this ungodly wailing meant they'd been tricked ashore at the gates of hell itself, when in truth, they stood shuddering among courting pairs of seabirds called wedge-tailed shearwaters. Dark, gull-sized seabirds with long, thin, tapering wings. Wedge-tailed shearwaters nest on islands in the tropical Pacific and Indian oceans. From Hawaii to Western Australia, To Madagascar. Most dig burrows to nest in, two to six feet deep, with a bend that allows the incubating birds to rest unseen. From dusk to midnight during courtship, pairs of wedge-tailed shearwaters sit facing one another on the ground and puff up their throats to perform long duets of eerie wailing, sometimes sending spooked sailors rowing in panic back to their ship for a ration of grog. I'm Michael Stein.
0: (laughs) And for pictures, haunt our website, LOE.org. So next week, I hope we'll have more cheerful news. Coming on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doran, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Special thanks today to One Ocean Expeditions. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade and Jake Rigo. Allison Ursch Dean composed our theme. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, and like us please on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from @LivingOnEarth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening.
5: From Gilman Ordway, and from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888 997 1703. That's 888 997
3: 1703. PRI, Public Radio International.